0: Good evening, friends. Welcome to Valley Writers Read. Tonight, Franz Weinshank, the host of our program, is reading a story of his entitled Brooklyn. Here he is, Franz Weinschenk, recalling what it was like to live in Brooklyn. 1935, and here we are, three German Jews. Hedwig, our mother, my older brother Fritz and me, just crossed the Atlantic Ocean on the huge four-smokestacked Cunard-White-Star liner, SS Aquitania, Cherbourg, France to New York. She's 45, Fritz 14, and me, I'm 9. Not that many years later, both Fritz and I would be returning to Germany, but this time in U.S. Army uniforms. He on D-Day on Normandy Beach and me during the Korean War. It took at least a half a dozen powerful tugs to dock our mammoth ocean liner, but once they did, the passengers started filing down the gangplank onto the pier. But not us... We're still on board, up on the main deck, waiting for Mother, who's being examined by the U.S. Immigration Service inside a lounge right next to where we're standing. From our vantage point, we can see the unbelievable skyline of New York. Wow, what a place. Still, it seems like Mother's been in there forever, more than an hour, and we're getting restless. She's very hard of hearing, can't speak a word of English, and that's what worries us. I'm thinking maybe she's going to fail her physical, or can't hear or understand what they're telling her, or they can't understand what she's telling them, or something else is wrong. Maybe our papers are screwed up, or the quota is filled, or whatever, and we'll all get sent back to Nazi land. God. About a half an hour later, we see our father, Jacob Hugo, all five feet, one inch of him, coming on board. He's been living in New York for almost a year. Come over on a visitor's visa. Hope he's got a regular one by now. But, ah, it's great to see him, we hug. Where is your mother, he asks nervously, and we tell him she's inside being examined by the immigration people. She's been in there forever, I tell him. So why isn't she coming out, he mumbles, and walks into the lounge to talk to somebody. I try not saying anything, but being a worrywart, I agonize about what will happen if they turn her down, and why is it taking so long? In the meantime, all we can do is wait. So that's what we do, wait and wait, and then wait some more. Somehow there is this German couple probably tourists, standing near us, also looking at the New York skyline. Both of them are wearing long black leather coats and wide-brimmed leather hats. The man sidles over. So, he asks in German, German boys, are you? Nicht wahr? Ja, Fritz answers. So then, what are your names? Fritz, he tells him. And you, he looks at me? Franz, I tell him. Fritz and Franz, he laughs, ah, such authentic German boys. So when to the Vaterland will you be returning, he asks. No, we're waiting for our mother, Fritz tells him, going to be living in New York. Oh, no, nein, nein, he says. You need to tell Mutti to take you back home, he says. That is where real German boys like you two, Fritz and Franz, belong, nicht wahr? Am I not right? We don't say anything, just walk over to the other side of the ship, then back around into the lounge. And what do you know, just as we do, here she comes, out of the door behind where the immigration people have set up their desk. And when she sees us, she smiles broadly. To me, that means that she's passed, right? Yes, yes, she made it. Mother and father embrace, she passed, everything is okay, she made it, we made it, they won't send us back. Thank God. By the time we walk down the gangplank onto the pier to collect our luggage, most everybody has left. But we're elated because we're going to be living in New York City. Yes, we're here. We finally got out of that hellhole over there and made it to America. God bless the United States of America. Our first meal is in the automat. You get to choose from an assortment of dishes inside little glass cubicles. Coins clink. You open little glass doors and carry your food to your table and eat it. Then there is a long ride on the subway. We get on the Sea Beach Express to Brooklyn, guarding our luggage like mother hens, and get off at the 59th Street station on 4th Avenue, then haul everything over to where we're going to be living on the second floor of a house on 61st Street between 5th and 6th Avenues. The place has steam heat, an ice box, a stove with an oven, and an out-of-use dumb waiter. But the main thing is that we survived, we made it, we're alive. About 3,000 of the 4,500 Jewish people who lived in and around our hometown of Mainz with its quarter million inhabitants would not make it. In the next six years, they would be sought out, humiliated, disgraced, persecuted, often physically attacked, their property confiscated, and finally put into boxcars and sent to concentration camps where they were either brutally worked, starved, beaten, shot, or gasped to death. Not a one ever returned to mines. The only crime? Being born Jewish. Sometimes it makes me feel guilty that I and my family made it, that we are lucky enough now to live in a place where people don't just automatically hate your guts. My folks get the one-bedroom and Fritz and me sleep on the couch, which makes into a double bed in the living room. And it's great to see Father again. We catch him up on all our year-long wait for our visas from the American consulate in Stuttgart. And he tells us all about his struggles to get work, about the deep depression America's in, and how, although he's made a tiny bit of money here and there selling American wines from California overseas, he's basically failed. I can see he's upset, he's aged, his eyes look strained, his voice anxious, he's worried about not having a regular job, not bringing home a paycheck, his English isn't all that great, he knows. Sure, he tries to act confident and positive, but the hard fact is that the only money coming in is from commissions on sales, and there are hardly any of those." How can you blame him, a man in his mid fifties, who knows he's failing at being the family provider, but still tries so hard and worries so much? The next morning, Fritz and I go out to take a look around the neighborhood. When the kids on the block see us, they start laughing, jeering, and hooting. It's Fritz's short pants. In Germany, all teenagers wear pants like that, but here in Brooklyn, Shorts are only for little kids like me. It's not a good beginning. Would retreat back home so he can change into the only pair of long pants he owns. The encounter sets a sour tone with him. From that time on, he mainly develops friends that are older, often from the high school that he goes to, not the kids on the block. Ah! but not me. For some reason, Jackie McPortland, a kid about my age who lives on the ground floor of our building, wants to be my friend. And even though I know no English, he helps me get in thick with the boys on our block. I start wearing a baseball cap just like they do. My parents can hardly get me to take the thing off, even at the dinner table." It's a symbol of my new identity, a Brooklyn Dodger fan. I even go to bed wearing the dumb thing. I learn how to play stickball, though badly, and handball, at which I'm a little better. We play against the wall of a big apartment building that has a large sign on it, positively no ball playing, but nobody pays any attention. For the first couple of weeks, our father, Jacob Hugo, becomes our tour guide. He walks us around the streets of Manhattan, and they really do take your breath away. Skyscraper after skyscraper, concrete, steel, and glass. We peer through the telescope atop the Empire State Building. 360 degrees of unbelievable buildings with avenues like canyons in between them, extended bodies of water in the distance. At a juice bar in Times Square, he buys us each an orange juice that's freshly squeezed, Right there in front of us. In Germany, you never see an orange except maybe at Christmas. The streets are so crowded. For a time, I become separated from them and panic. How will I ever be able to find my way back home? Luckily, we reconnect. We ride the ferry to Staten Island right in front of the Statue of Liberty with Manhattan's skyline in the background. On the weekend, we go swimming at Coney Island, and Fritz gets nabbed by a woman cop for changing into his swim trunks under the boardwalk. She chews on my folks for a while. Next, he takes us to the aquarium in Battery Park, where the bums hang out. wants to show us the electric eel. It's a long, slimy green thing in a big tank that peers out at you from under a rock. There's supposed to be a demonstration every hour. When the attendant finally arrives, he repeatedly pokes a stick at the thing till it gets mad enough to emit a little electricity into the water, just enough to light up a tiny bulb on the side of the tank. How about that, he beams with pride. Really something, Nishwa. America has come through. The long block where we live in Brooklyn, 61st Street, between 5th and 6th Avenue, is a solid, uninterrupted exercise in repetition. Every house is the exact duplicate of its neighbor. All are two stories high and have exterior brownstone staircases leading up to the first floor landing, like townhouses. To get to the second floor where we live, you have to go up the outside staircase, enter through the first story front door, and walk up another flight on the inside. The front room of each floor has a bay window that looks out onto 61st Street. All the houses are dark brown with light brown sash and trim and the same black curlicue wrought iron banisters on the outside staircases, the same gray metal garbage cans set in exactly the same spot and the same street-level concrete porches they call Aries. When school starts that fall... We realize how Irish the neighborhood really is since Fritz and I are just about the only kids on the block who go to public school. The other kids all go to the big K-12 through Catholic school complex located right next to one of the largest churches in the world, Our Lady of Immaculate Conception, which is actually two churches in one since it has two floors, each housing a totally separate church. It can accommodate two separate religious services, masses, weddings, funerals, baptisms, all at the same time in the same building only in New York. Had I stayed in Germany, I would have been in the fifth grade, but since I don't know the language, they ship me back to the second grade, and for the next three years, every few months or so, as my teachers think I'm catching on, they move me up a half a grade, from 2A to 2B, from 2B to 3A, and so on. Each time I have to leave the few new friends I made in the previous class and start over again with a new teacher, new students, and a new system. And I don't remember a day that I don't have to go to the bathroom sometimes during the morning or afternoon, but too embarrassed to ask. It's tough holding it, and sometimes I don't make it. And once on my way home from school, I see this sign on an apartment house. It says, Room to Let." I thought that meant they had a room with a toilet, and I went up and asked. "'Heavens no, child,' she said, and slammed the door. "'We rent from the McPortlands, $43 a month. Three generations of McPortlands occupy the bottom two floors, "'and then one afternoon when I come home from school, "'there's a large funeral wreath hanging from the door on top of the outside steps.' "'Grandfather MacPortland has died. "'When I open the door, there he is. "'They have opened the two sliding doors "'from their first-floor front room to the hallway, "'and I cannot pass without being in his presence. "'I had never seen a dead man like that. "'He looks so real and lifelike.' like he might sit up any minute and say hi to me, just like he did a few days ago. And what shocks me most is there are all these people sitting around, eating and drinking and laughing and talking so loud. I thought you were supposed to be solemn and quiet in the presence of death. The subways of New York are always crowded and noisy. For a nickel, you can ride all day and never go over the same tracks twice. Even at two or three in the morning, the cars are filled with people of every size, color, and description, coming and going. Like the arteries of a raging beast, the New York subways pump humanity like cells from the core to its extremities and back again, nourishing the city's insatiable appetite. People always seem to be on urgent business, they hurry, they run, sometimes even sprint to make connections. Even before their train arrives, they huddle in tight knots at the track's edge, knowing that one of the doors of their particular train will open exactly where they're standing. The train crashes into the station with a great whoosh, but breaks precisely on its appointed spot. Instantly, the doors roll open. Some people wiggle out. Others charge in. Often the cars are so full there doesn't seem to be room for even one more. So those left outside turn their backs on the mass of humanity inside and push backwards as hard as they can and somehow force their entrance. By the time the doors struggle to close, the crush is paralyzing. "'As I'm standing there in the middle of a car, pinned in tight from all sides, "'I feel a hand on my buttocks, exploring and invading. "'Terrified, I bolt and I fight my way past the annoyed passengers "'to the other end of the car, and I glance back. "'But it is impossible to tell. "'They all look equally indifferent. "'Those lucky enough to get seats close their eyes or read.' the rest of us hang on to posts or leather straps hooked on to overhead rails like dangling carcasses. Some read newspapers folded into narrow columns so as not to take up too much room. Their neighbors steal a read as the train hurtles on through a maze of tunnels, passageways, and tubes at blazing speeds over and under rivers. Our car jerks from side to side as we sway in unison. From time to time the lights go out, but nobody minds. It happens all the time. The trains just scream on day and night Workdays, weekends, holidays, millions crammed themselves into the subways because in New York, that's the way you get there. By 1937, America is in a deep depression. It hits New York especially hard. Tough, savvy people explore every conceivable way of making a living. They pursue every angle, ponder every possibility, investigate every machination. The problem is, how can you make a buck? They are established, know the language and the ropes a lot better than Jacob Hugo. Still, he combs the papers every night, calls listings in his German accent, writes long-winded, boring letters detailing his background and experience, and sometimes even goes in for interviews, but nothing. All he ever gets are sales jobs— peddling marginal products to overstock customers and then only on commission, no advances or guarantees. Our front room is cluttered with the products he's trying to peddle. They remind us of his struggles. A rotary press to compact newspapers into fire logs. Several leaky packages of soybean meal which, so the label announces, yields all the elements of abundant life. An oscillating leather belt on a flimsy metal hinge to sharpen used razor blades. A vibrating display case in the form of a shallow platform on which an advertiser can place small figures that vibrate and gyrate in random circles once you plug the thing in. At seven o'clock every morning, with his sample case in one hand, his briefcase in the other, he leaves the house with subway maps and lists of prospective customers in his lapel pocket. Now and then he gets an order or two, but the commissions are small and late in coming. He tries writing a novel and poetry, slaving over an ancient typewriter late into the night, Desperately hoping for some kind of breakthrough, and still insists there has to be a way to make a living in America, but it eludes him. The best he ever does is to export California wines to a few of his former customers in Europe. Still, there is never enough money, and we are forced to move to a cheaper apartment a few blocks away, in a less desirable neighborhood, a little smaller and a floor higher. That saves $10 a month. In our new place, you have to put quarters in the meter, one for electricity and one for gas. And it isn't unusual for the lights to go off in the middle of the evening and for somebody to have to run down three flights of stairs to feed the meter. And while there had been an abundance of cockroaches at 61st Street, they were nothing compared to our newest companions, Bedbugs, little dark brown button-like critters that swell up twice or three times their size after they've tapped you. They leave you with a welt the size of a dime or bigger. If you ever squash one of them after it's been at you, you shudder at the oozing blood between your fingers. They're so totally resistant to bug spray and so good at hiding that our mother has us break down our bed and couch every saturday morning and dunked the corners of the frames into scalding water in the bathtub to chase them out of cracks and crevices but her efforts make little difference the rumor has it they hide in the ceiling and drop down on you at night our icebox holds a 25 pound block of ice in the top compartment and one time we forget to empty the melt from the pan underneath Soon the dripping water is discovered in the Western Union office on the ground floor of our building. They inquire on the first floor as to where the water is coming from. Then the second, and soon half the residents of the building stand on the landing outside our front door, giving us holy hell. It's all we can do to keep from being evicted. Father smokes a pipe, mother and brother cigarettes. Now and then I snitch a cigarette or two from her purse, but mainly I do what all the other kids do, pick up spit-soggy cigarette butts from off-streets and subway platforms where smokers have dumped them. They make you dizzy and sick. As soon as I get past our front door, I head for the bathroom and brush my teeth furiously, but I'm sure they know. They just don't say anything. Sometimes at night, when he isn't typing, he gets out his old cello and he plays. Boccarini, Bach, and Dwozhak just saws away like in the old days, totally lost. You'd think the neighbors would complain, but since their mother is a middle-aged Scotch immigrant who still dreams of becoming an opera star and who gives us wall-to-wall scales all night long, the two musical geniuses of the third floor cancel each other out, leaving the rest of us to suffer. As short of money as he is, he opens a $5 savings account for each of us, Fritz and me. It's an important thing for him to do, like a covenant, almost religious. I add a few cents to mine now and then. Often, a few of us kids hang around the grocery store, hoping a customer might need somebody to carry her bundles home. It might mean a few pennies or a nickel. One time, the shoe repair guy who leases a booth right across from the Western Union office in our building asks me if I want to make some money. Sure, since he doesn't have a stitching machine for heavy leather, my job is to take three pairs of shoes in a large paper bag to his cousin's shop two miles down 4th Avenue and get the soles stitched up. I return about two hours later, and he gives me two pennies for my trouble." But then in winter, whenever it snows, sometimes kids like me get as much as a quarter for cleaning the snow off of people's sidewalks. Once at dinner, it comes out that Dad has a swelling in his groin. It turns out to be a hernia. As time passes, the bulge gets bigger, and he orders a truss for $6.95 through a magazine advertisement. It's a big spring-like affair that has a pad in front which fits over the protruding intestine. He calls it his eye, his pig mess, but tolerates it. An operation would cost over a $100. Impossible. With increasing regularity on my way to school on 4th Avenue, I see people actually living in the street, families who have been evicted, not bums or hobos, but whole families, huddled together on tattered couches or layers of cardboard in alleys and below-level revetments next to coal chutes. Where do they cook and eat, I wonder, or change their clothes, or go to the bathroom? And how long do the owners and the police allow them there? And then what? Fritz has always loved ships and boats, anything that floats. He gets the arrival and departure times of the big ocean liners out of the New York Times and the two of us go down to the pier on 57th Street and watch the likes of the Normandy, the Amsterdam, or the Hamburg glide quietly in and out of New York Harbor. "'And we try our hand at fishing. "'No poles, just a skein of line, "'a lead sinker and some hooks. "'He sets bloody pieces of fish intestines on the hooks "'and brings in a couple of slithery eels "'that coil like snakes when you land them. "'We dump them in a bucket filled with seawater "'and even land more than a dozen small pink crabs "'that won't let go of the bait "'even after you've pulled them out of the water.' They, too, go into the bucket. And when we get home, we dump the whole slithery mess into the bathtub. But somehow, the crabs get out. Most of them crawl around our apartment, and we're able to retrieve them. But a few scramble down the ventilation shaft that connects all the bathrooms in the building. The eels are still in the tub when Mother goes in there. She lets out a scream you can hear clear down to the street. Aina schlange, she screams, a snake. Even months later, we hear a talk from some of the neighbors about a crab or two being found in somebody's bathroom. Luckily, there is enough money to buy Mother an inexpensive hearing aid, a little black box that fits into the inside of her bodice with a thin black wire that connects to a hearing aid in her ear. Hallelujah! Though there is a lot of crackling and squealing, she can hear so much better and consequently is better able to communicate with others. As a matter of fact, she starts doing piecework. Knitting, crocheting, and applique. It takes weeks and weeks to complete one knitted dress. First the front of the blouse, often in two parts, then the back, then the sleeves and the collar, and finally the skirt, a monumental task in itself, all knit on a long curved needle in one piece to avoid seams. Often she finds a mistake and many days' work has to be ripped out. And when it is finally, finally finished and blocked and ironed and lovingly wrapped in tissue and boxes, it still only brings at most 13 maybe $15. And once she sends me to the store with a $10 bill to buy groceries. In those days, the clerks, not the customers, retrieve the things you ask for. They mark down the price of each item on a brown paper grocery bag, And it's fascinating to watch them add up your bill almost instantly, two columns at a time. Going back home, I hear loud sirens just around the corner, so I investigate. There are three fire engines, red lights flashing, smoke is pouring out of a window, three-quarters of the way up the side of a tall apartment house, and people are standing at the open window screaming to get down. Hurriedly, the firemen set their ladders up against the red brick wall next to the window and haul them out. I watch for about a half an hour and I start home. But to my utter horror, I realized that I either lost or somebody clipped three dollar bills part of the change I got from the ten dollar bill my mother had given me. The coin change was still in my pocket. I am petrified to go home. How can I ever, ever explain? How stupid and careless can you get? An idea. I go back to the grocery store, tell them what happened, and ask to borrow $3, promising to repay the money since I had over $8 in the bank. To my great surprise, they agree, and the next day, right after school, I withdraw the money from the bank and I pay them back. One night, Dad brings home a small box that turns out to be a tiny Emerson radio. Pure magic. Every night at 10 o'clock, they listen to the news with Hans von Kaltenborn, and on Sundays there are concerts with the likes of Thomas Beecham, Bruno Walter, Dimitri Metropolis, and Arturo Toscanini conducting... And on Saturdays, she never misses the Metropolitan Opera with Milton Cross. But me, I get to hear Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy, the Lone Ranger, One Man's Family, Little Offen Annie, Dick Tracy, the Shadow, Buck Rogers, the Green Hornet, Uncle Don, Mayor LaGuardia reading the Sunday Funnies, and best of all, Red Barber, the voice of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And one night, with a volume real low in my ear right next to the speaker, I'm half scared out of my mind when Orson Welles presents The War of the Worlds. Even though the announcer keeps telling us that it's only a drama, the broadcast is so realistic, I keep looking out the window to see if the invaders from Mars have crossed the harbor yet on their way to our house in Brooklyn. Several people die of heart attacks that night while listening. And often, on Saturday afternoons, some of us kids head down to the Varsity Movie House on 6th Avenue. It only costs 10 cents to get in. Two main features, a cartoon, coming attractions, and the scariest serial ever. Episode 6, Dick Tracy is cornered by the hook way up there on a steel girder. Instead of a hand, this guy has a sharp metal hook. Tracy is trapped. If he steps back even one inch, he'll fall to his death. There's no way for him to get out, and we watch in horror as the villain takes careful aim at Tracy's skull, and with swelling chords of ominous music, we see the lethal hook come down with speed and force. And that's where the action ends. If you want to find out what happened, you have to come back next week. There is a matron present. She wears a white uniform like a nurse. To make room for new customers, if she thinks you've seen the show once already, she makes you get up and sit right down in the very front row where the sound is deafening and the image is elongated and surreal and you come out punch-drunk and cockeyed. At 12, I graduate from the sixth grade at P.S. 118, and I start at Dewey Junior High School down about 20 blocks on 4th Avenue. By now, I'm just about in the right grade for my age, and my all-time favorite is Miss Rowland, my seventh-grade English teacher. She is young and tall with a milk-white complexion and shiny black hair combed back in a bun. She always wears low-cut blouses, and you can see the separation between her abundant breasts when she bends over, which she does a lot. She is warm and fetching, yet distant and professional, all at the same time. First we do the Lady of the Lake, and then the Merchant of Venice. And when she pretends to be Portia and reads to us, she drips with compassion. How could you turn her down? The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven. Still I have mixed emotions. In its day, true, Shylock was a villain of the play. But, ah, not so fast, says Shakespeare. After all, the poor guy was driven to his madness by so much hatred and prejudice against him. On my way home from school, I think about all this a lot, and that night I make up my mind that I will tell Miss Rowland and the whole class. But it just so happens that the next day... "'one of my last baby teeth comes loose, "'and I have this compulsion to wiggle it back and forth, "'determined to get it out. Franz, will you stop bothering that tooth she scolds, "'really annoyed? "'I feel terrible. "'To get a rebuff from Miss Rowland is simply awful. "'Immediately I take the finger out of my mouth "'and close my lips, "'but still can't resist pushing the damn thing "'back and forth with my tongue, "'and lo and behold,' It pops out, and when she isn't looking, I spit it into my hand and for a moment imagine that I am Shylock delivering his famous speech. I am a Jew. Hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions? I taste the sweet ooze from the gap in my gums and look at that tiny tooth. And if you pluck out our teeth, do we not bleed? And it's not as though there aren't a lot of other Jew haters in America. People like Henry Ford, Charles Lindbergh, and Father Coughlin, who comes on the radio every Sunday night with an hour-long anti-Semitic rant. Worse yet is Fritz Kuhn, head of the German American Bund. He's always decked out in his brown shirt, Nazi uniform, with swastikas fluttering all around, and he boasts of having more than 20,000 paying members in his organization. All these folks are overjoyed when in 1936 Max Schmelling comes over from Germany and knocks out Joe Lewis and thrilled when the dirigible hindenburg makes it across the atlantic to lakehurst new jersey but then when it explodes the following year and lewis wins the rematch in 1938 i feel like maybe the nazis aren't so invincible after all hey, let your They have what they call the Knothole Club at Junior High. You pay a quarter and you get to go to two Brooklyn Dodger games. I'm surprised about Ebbets Field, how small it is, at least from the outside. A kind of high, round construction right next to the street. Scores of kids without tickets are climbing the high wire fence and back of the grandstands trying to sneak in all in plain view of the mounted policemen who ride over and make them get down but the game is wonderful leo de rocher their feisty manager gets into a big fight with the umpires and the dodgers win i dramatize it all with great hyperbole to my friends on our block but the second time i go the game is sold out and i can't get in Since I had done so much bragging about going, I hang around a hot dog stand in front of the stadium that has a radio going and listen to Red Barber describe the game. After it's over, I join the crowd heading for the subway, pretend like I had been there, and tell everybody all about it. Often on my way to and from school, the boys match chewing gum cards. These are three-by-three-inch cards you get when you buy a flat piece of pink bubble gum for a penny. They all have war pictures on them, atrocities committed by Japanese soldiers in their war in China, children bayoneted, civilians bombed bloody limbs and heads flying off bodies. And there are dirty cards as well. The kids call them Bibles. One guy throws his card down and the other tries to match it, heads or tails. Having practiced over and over, the second guy holds his card just so, swings his arms, and lets go precisely at the bottom of his arc so that the card will tumble to the ground just as he wants, heads or tails. If it's a match, He gets to keep both cards. If not, he loses his. And nearby, well, the girls are forever jumping rope to the rhythm of a never-ending sing-song jingle. Lulu has a baby. She named him Tiny Tim. Put him in the bathtub to teach him how to swim. He swam to the bottom. He swam to the top. Lulu spilled some water and had to get the mop. On and on and on. And then somehow a toy that looks like a small wooden spool gets to be the rage with all of us kids. They call it a yo-yo. One end of a string loops around its axle while you tie the other to your finger. You wind up the string and throw it down. It spins so fast going down. ...that it has enough momentum to wind itself up again right back into your hand. And every week or so, a guy who says he's an Hawaiian yo-yo champ... ...comes around and organizes a block-wide yo-yo contest... After showing off what he can do, he tells us that the winner of the contest will get a real stay-down yo-yo, just like the ones he sells. Well, since most of us have been practicing all week, now's our chance to prove what we can do. But getting that yo-yo to do tricks isn't all that easy. Just making it stay down and do what they call walking the dog is hard enough. And it's only when you can do advanced tricks like rock the baby in the cradle or fly around the moon that you have a chance at really winning something. I'm going to make a brand new start of it In old New York If I can make it there Up to you the Meanwhile, Father finally has to go see somebody about his hernia. The doctor tells him it's so big now that it could fold over on itself, block his intestines, and kill him. So he borrows 125 dollars and admits himself to a hospital in Brooklyn. He's supposed to be out in a week, but contracts an infection. They have him in a large ward of men, a tiny pale figure with tubes draining from his groin. Still, he keeps his briefcase next to his bed and writes letters to potential customers. Before he entered the hospital, he had sold some wine to the Swedish Monopole. In those days, their government ran the liquor stores over there and now the order needs processing. So, he carefully gives me instructions, point by point. First, you go to the wine company in Manhattan, get them to make out the invoices, the bills of lading, and the insurance forms. Takes all those to the Custom House, then to the Holland America Line, which is the shipping agent, and finally, turn everything back to the wine company. It all goes well. He's pleased. I just turned 14 and I feel very grown up. It means $125 for us, money we desperately need to pay bills. But the trouble is, he isn't getting any better. Just lies there week after week. Fritz graduates from high school with honors. He's awarded a beautiful medal with a diamond chip in it for a superior scholarship. And though at first they don't admit him to CCNY because he's an alien, he finally makes it into college and gets himself a part-time job working in the newspaper room of the big public library in Manhattan. With father in the hospital, Fritz's money makes all the difference. Without it, we can't survive. Mother hears about a place that needs sewers to do shoulder pads, and we call right away. Yes, they have work, lots of it, they tell us, but you need a sewing machine. Sure, we tell them we have one, which is a lie. The place is on the 12th floor of an office building right in the heart of the Garment District in Manhattan, cluttered and busy, He sends me home with two large cardboard boxes filled with black rayon shoulder pad halves, spools of black binding tape, and a mountain of cotton. The minute I get home, Mother and I buy a used tabletop sewing machine for $18, $4 down, two a week. First, you sew the two halves of the pad together, shiny side in, like sausages "'Dozens and dozens. "'Those get turned inside out, "'stuffed with cotton and sewed up with binder tape. "'We sew and sew late into the night.' Getting the binding right is tough, even with a binder guide attachment, because you're sewing through four layers of material. Stitches knot up and needles break. The leather belt from the motor slips because there's too much resistance, and then the motor overheats. Meanwhile, the bobbin gets stuck and the tensions goes haywire. And even after we finish, there is this cat and mouse game I have to play with the subway guards who don't allow people with big cartons like that— on trains. But even at a dollar seventy five a gross, we do pretty well for about five weeks. And then one afternoon, as I lift two boxes of finished work up on his counter, the receiving clerk, whose accent is even thicker than mine, hands me a postcard and tells me to write my name and address on it. V send you Ven V get more work, he says. Of course, we never hear from him again and have to take the sewing machine back. A couple of weeks later, Dad finally makes it home, weak and thin, He immediately starts to try to sell again, canvassing, phoning, calling on potential customers. But then one day, as he's up at the wine company, just out of the blue, the boss, who is the son of the winery owner in California, calls him into his office and tells him that if he wants it, he can have a bookkeeping job on a big grape ranch in California. $80 a month and a house to live in, free Imagine, imagine. He's ecstatic. Can you imagine such a thing? Over our heads, a real roof for nothing, for absolutely nothing. Never again to worry about the the rent. Never again to worry about being evicted. Besides, with the war coming on, there'll be no more wine sales overseas. Fritz doesn't want to go because he's in college and has a job, makes enough money to get by. But I want to go. California sounds great to me. Open spaces, real land Oranges, a farm where you can grow things, a place to get out into nature and breathe fresh air away from cramped apartment buildings, paved over everything, crowded subways, evictions, and this nerve-wracking, everlasting insecurity about money. Don't hesitate a minute, I tell them. Go, go, I beg them. And they decide to do it. Yes, good, I'm glad. We'll go, the three of us. Fritz will come later. Once again, she carefully packs the few surviving treasures from the old days. Four embroidered linen sheets and pillowcases, a pre-World War I engraved silver tea and coffee set, six tiny silver monogram dessert spoons, several paintings, one of which is a portrait of herself, painted some thirty years ago. All of it goes into the same steamer trunk that brought it across the Atlantic. The rent has been paid till the end of May, and that's the exact day, Memorial Day 1939, that we get on a Greyhound bus and the driver punches our ticket. It would take three and a half days to get from New York City to Madeira, California. California, here I come, yeah, right back where I started from, where bowers of flowers bloom in the spring. Each morning at dawning, birdies sing and everything. A son kiss yes, miss it. Don't be later. That's why I can hardly wait. Come on, come on. Open up, open up, open up. That golden gate, California. Here I come. Friends. This is Franz Weinschenk. Except for Native Americans, at one time just about everybody or their ancestors came to America from some other place. In tonight's story, we got a feel for what it was like to come as a refugee from Germany in the years just prior to World War II when our country was in a very deep depression. If you'd like to find out more of what happened to our author and his family when... As is indicated in tonight's story, They Move From New York to Madeira, you can read about it in the popular anthology, Highway 99, which is published by Heyday Press. And so we come to the end of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to listen to tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read story again, just go online to kvpr.org and link up with archived audio. Next week, our author will be Oscar G. Williams. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio, produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m for another edition of Valley Riders Read.